Welcome to Mind of State, a podcast for both political junkies and armchair shrinks. I'm psychoanalyst and trauma therapist, Betty Tang. And I'm political communication strategist, Jonathan Kopp. Join us as we welcome experts in politics and psychology to consider this, the state of our nation through the state of our minds and the mind of our state. Hi, Betty. Hi, Jonathan. You know, in your work as a trauma therapist, I think it's safe to say you tend to focus on the individual. Yeah. Right? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I I keep thinking as a sort of student of politics about our collective experience and about the collective trauma, at least it it feels from a layperson's perspective anyway, that we are experiencing some some serious collective trauma. Absolutely. Um, You know, crises of a biomedical sort, this is a natural disaster, really. A number of them. Yeah, right. uh, right. We sit in these intersecting crises, it's going to have an impact on us. Our whole lives have been derailed, and they, they remain derailed a year out. People are really fraying uh, in a myriad ways. And that's individually true, but it's also true of our societal collective. Absolutely. Right. So we have this complex that we are uh, that we're that we're wrestling with of of trauma on a, on a physical, on a health perspective, economic perspective, racial tensions all political, bubbling societal. up and mixing at once. Absolutely. Right, political as well. <laughs> Just keep and, naming and, them, and, Jonathan. And I, Let's keep going. <laughs> right, and and this is our present day, but it's also probably multi-generational. We can go back over generations of suffering and trauma, and, and it's an awful lot for us to for us to be processing at this moment, isn't it's it? It's so much. It's really so much, and and as as such, it's so good to recruit an expert on trauma to speak to us about how we might apply some of the tenets of trauma treatment to ourselves as a society as we go through this. And that's exactly why we're so fortunate to have with us Dr. Judith Herman as our guest on this episode of Mind of State. Uh, Dr. Herman is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And for 30 years, she was the director of training at the Victims of Violence programs at Cambridge Hospital in Massachusetts. She is the author of two award-winning books on trauma and recovery, and we're so thrilled to have her with us. Thank you so much for joining us on Mind of State. My pleasure. There has been what some people consider the four-year trauma of Trump. And now we are we are looking at societal, social, political traumas of, of of monumental proportions, and so not only pandemic, um, but economic crisis, uh, referendum on racial injustice, climate justice, and climate change. And so, let's go through the framework of trauma informed treatment to see how we can apply it. I guess the place to start is to see trauma not simply as an individual problem, but as a social problem. Um, And this is particularly true of the multiple traumas that ensue when you have a social structure of dominance and subordination. So that um, you talked about the reckoning with systemic racism, 
Um, we also might mention Me Too and a reckoning with the oppressions of patriarchy. Absolutely. And then we have all the economic and justice issues. Um, and you can think of the the pandemic as as a virus that not only uh, attacks the weak spots in an individual's immune system, but also the weak spots in the social, society's immune system, so that all of the injustices and inequities, if you will, of of our society turn out to be real weak spots. Right. They're sort of, they're like pre-existing conditions, aren't they? Right. Yeah. And they, and so our society fractures along those lines and we see, for example, black people being exposed and getting sick. And then you have the racial disparities of healthcare and dying at much higher rates. Yeah. Four and five times. white people. So, so trauma, to my mind, is never a personal issue. It's a social issue. Um, and that means that the healing is not just a matter of a personal matter. It's a social matter. And that's why, for example, groups are so important and social support is so important in healing from trauma. And we have very good data that shows that social support is a a predictor both of resilience, meaning um, not developing post-traumatic stress despite being exposed to a, a deadly stressor, also recovery. And in individual treatment, uh, we have very good data, and this actually applies not just to trauma, but to psychotherapy in general, that the therapeutic alliance is the single greatest predictor can I ask you to just pause and define that term? As a non-mental health professional, sometimes I trip over, you know, some of the terminology. It just means the relationship. It just means a relationship of trust where a person feels safe and free to speak her mind. So um, what I did in talking about trauma recovery and and Psychotherapy is really the the bedrock of of trauma treatment. Um, we don't have medication that makes trauma go away. Although actually, alcohol people self medicate with alcohol for that reason. Uh, it makes it go away temporarily. It's so it's it's the first stage of trauma treatment is developing a safe, trusting relationship. But the problem is that for people who have been exploited and abused, the first thing that's destroyed is trust. So you can't just assume that a person coming into your office uh, is going to trust you. It has to be earned. And so we talk about building a, a a therapeutic alliance, if you will, or building a trusting relationship. I see. So the therapeutic alliance is between the, the the mental health professional and the patient. Correct. Correct. So that's the beginning of trauma treatment. And then I 
define three basic stages uh, of treatment, and they're not rigidly defined stages, nor do they have a, a, a rigid timetable. I get, I still get questions from, especially the, you know, the, the bean counter types. Well, how long does this treatment have to go on? You know, can we get it done right, in right. three weeks, six weeks? You know, uh, right? They want it. They they want to know the program. They want to know the end goal. They want to know the timing. Absolutely. But it's a more fluid, organic uh, process. Absolutely, and it depends to a large extent on how severe, how prolonged the trauma was. I mean, a single incident is not the same as being abused starting when you're five and going on till you're 17 when you run away from home. So the the first day when you've, when you've built or you've started to build a relationship, the first goal of trauma treatment is safety. And that means if you're working with a battered woman and it's crisis intervention, you have to know how to get a restraining order, where the safe houses are, um, how to figure out how to get somebody some money. Um, It's all about survival at the beginning and establishing at least a perimeter, a defensive perimeter, um, so that you can't really go back and talk about the past until there's some degree of safety in, in the present. And that's not just a therapeutic challenge that's a social problem right you need physical you need physical safety before you can start to address the mental and emotional exactly exactly um and this is an issue for example with refugees and people in conflict zones uh where they've gotten to a refugee camp but it's run if it's run by a mafia there's still no safety um, and yet you, you're trying to build social support. You're trying to build some degree of some at least small area where the person doesn't have to be hypervigilant all the time. That's another jargon term for being on alert constantly, um, expecting danger at all times. And people who are, that's one of the major symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And it means that you're Adrenaline is going all the time. You can't sleep. You have nightmares. Um, you startle at the smallest sound, and you're constantly watching the door or you're scanning the environment. In mentioning doors, I, I recall our last episode, actually, with uh, our guest, Megan Doney, who is a survivor of a school shooting. Mm-hmm. And she said that ever since then, ever since escaping out the emergency door, she sees doors differently yep. Uh, yep. now through the rest of her life. You can see people with PTSD if you meet them in a coffee shop, for example. They'll want to sit near the door or sit where they can see. You know, they'll check out all the exits. They'll Makes sense. Yeah. So safety is the first challenge. And as I say, it's it's not just an individual problem because nobody can be safe in isolation. It means you have to know who you can trust. You have to have some social support system. If you don't have it, you need to build it. I, I, um, one of my colleagues at Cambridge Hospital used to say to patients, 
our first order of business is to make sure you have a friend because I can't be your 24-7 support system. I'm a limited human being. So you have to have at least one friend. And if you don't have a friend, then our first job is going to be making a friend. So, So that's stage one. And it doesn't mean that we don't talk about the trauma. We, we do, but we talk about it more in terms of its, its impact on the symptoms that the person is having now. Understanding what is PTSD, understanding feelings of, of shame and anger and terror that come along with trauma. And and naming them and understanding how they impact, how they're experienced in life now. We have, uh, for our early recovery patients, we have what we call our trauma information group, and that's a 10-week weekly meeting uh, with with quite a structure. It has, we have an information sheet that we, um, use for each top each each session has a topic, and we have an inter- information seat, sheet for each topic, like what is PTSD or safety and self care is our second topic, um, things like that. And we read a, a paragraph from our information sheet, and then people discuss. Oh yeah, um, I have that symptom too. You know. Oh, you have nightmares too oh, you numb out and you just want to withdraw and hide. Oh, I do that too. So part of the treatment is understanding that you're not alone in the symptoms that you're experiencing, that there is a, that there's a common human experience in response to trauma. Exactly, exactly. And it, it has a name and it doesn't mean you're weird or crazy, which is what a lot of people fear. Um, it just means that you had something terrible happen to you and this is the normal, a normal response. And so it, being in the group, feeling understood um, is a tremendous relief for people who feel isolated and ashamed and that no one would understand or no one would believe them. Or uh, So, so that's kind of the, the, the early stage of trauma recovery where it's about safety. It's also about self-care because if you don't feel safe in your body or if you are a danger to yourself, then you can't be safe anywhere. And when you talk about the isolation, the feeling of isolation, I think that what you're speaking of predominantly is a, a, a mental and emotional isolation that you feel like you're experiencing this alone. But in the world of the pandemic, where we are actually physically isolated, it is required in order to get through this pandemic. How does the physical isolation feed into the experience of the traumatized person? Well, of course, it exacerbates both the feeling of being alone and it actually also exacerbates danger for many people. Um, There's been a tremendous increase reported in many countries now in domestic violence since the pandemic because if husbands are home yes 
Right. You, you're, uh, you're isolated, but unfortunately, you're isolated with the person who's causing the trauma. Exactly. Yeah. And we're not getting a lot of child, but a, a big increase in child abuse reports, but people are worried that that's because kids are not going to school and they don't have teachers that they might be able to confide in or um, they're not going to their regular pediatrician's appointments. So, and they're not only not getting immunized, they're for ordinary things like measles and, and mumps and rubella, but they're not having opportunities to be out of the home where somebody else might be able to intercede. And of course, teachers and doctors are what we call mandated reporters. We are required, if we suspect child abuse, to let the child protective services know um, but that's not happening as much in the pandemic. So the isolation is both emotional and um, with a big increase in mental health demand, both for frontline workers and for people socially isolated in their homes. But it's also physically dangerous for many people. And so we're talking about big macro uh, impacts of trauma to micro impacts um, of ongoing soci sociological situations. What are we to do in terms of establishing safety for society? Let me go through the other two stages because I think um, that will help um, think about how can we do this on a macro level. Um, once safety is established, then what's generally what generally comes next is a reckoning with the past um going back and talking about what happened or and reliving what's ha what happened not just the facts of what happened but the emotional impact and the bodily sensations and the thoughts that, you know, like, uh, it's all my fault, which is so common. Uh, and the shame, the self-blame, the sense of being different, um, not belonging, not deserving to belong, sometimes not deserving to live. And so all that has to be revisited from this place of greater safety so that there is, one can make a distinction between that was then and this is now. Um, and we have to do that not as a exorcism. People often think they just want to vomit it out and get it all out. And that doesn't really work very well. And that's what they did with under hypnosis um, with combat veterans when they want to return them to combat. But that's not how you recover to live the rest of your life. Um, so we do it a little at a time and we process each little bit and that, and we keep it within the range of emotional tolerance so that people are not re-traumatized by um, being compelled to, or driven to pour out more than they can emotionally handle. And, and then there's a, a process of grieving because you, you can't go back to the person you were before 
this happened. Uh, or uh, you can't have the life that you might have had if you had not been abused as a child, you know, or if you had not been made to be a child soldier, if you, that you're, you are changed by what happened to you. But as you grieve, you also come to realize that you're not, it's, it's part of your story, but it's not the whole story. Um, it's part of you, of who you are, but it's not all of who you are. And that, and, and that, as people sort of come to realize that, they ha- begin to have more of a sense of the future. Yeah. And then, so the third stage of recovery as people sort of emerge from their grieving is more about possibility and expansion. So that instead of being, so it's, it's re-engaging in the present, but instead of from a defensive perimeter, it's more from an expansive sense of taking on new challenges, um, developing more intimacy, sort of daring to do things or imagine who you can be, uh, not just who you were. And, and um, so that's the sort of more rewarding, if you will, moment in, in trauma recovery when people really are able to embrace all of who they are. And some amazing survivors develop what my colleague, and friend Robert J. Lifton calls a survivor mission, um, which is in some ways redefining the meaning of the trauma by making it a gift to others in some way, by joining with others to try to prevent this from happening to other people. Um, And people will say things like, you know, if if I can prevent one uh, one person from getting assaulted, or if I can help one person get safe, or if I can cha- help change the laws so survivors are uh, better cared for, um, and so these injustices can be corrected, then it won't have been in vain. And maybe this is what I was meant to do. You know? A sense of mission, sense of purpose. Yes. So as we apply this framework of trauma and post-traumatic stress to the collective experience, I know, Judith, you've written, uh, and I've so appreciated your writing about about the, the collective PTSD, if you will, of systemic political violence, where you've written about really some of the most dire situations in this world, dictatorships, civil wars, genocide, um, things that frankly, we haven't, so many of us, most of us in the West have not experienced um, in, in the United States. So many have, they're refugees from, and they bring their personal experience. But I mean, collectively, here in the United States, we have not experienced a modern civil war or a genocide or or these experiences that are occurring in other parts of the world. How how do you apply this approach to collective PTSD to the experiences that that we've had recently that to our lives feel traumatic? Well, I would argue that we are still dealing with the re- legacy of our civil war, actually. And you, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. 
because, you know, the Civil War, it's not clear who won the Civil War. Um, I mean, the Union was preserved and slavery was abolished uh, in the Constitution. um, But once the federal forces were uh, withdrawn from the South, we had a century of Jim Crow, which I would argue was a system of state terrorism by which an enslaved population was basically re-enslaved, functionally re-enslaved. And that the political structure that we developed was uh, involved tremendous compromise with the what I would call the one-party dictatorships of the South, um, and compromise that sort of also implicated the North in financing the cotton industry um, and the other cash crops that were grown by, um, if not slave labor. Indentured servitude, certainly. Yes. And I don't, I, I think we do need to come to terms with that legacy in a much deeper and more widespread way than we have to date. I do think that that um, we might be due for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, for example as a kind of stage one, um, or I would call it more a, a truth and repair commission because I, I, I think repair has to precede reconciliation. I think one of the, the big strength of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa was that it put survivors at the center and their testimony was widely broadcast, mostly on radio, so that their stories were central. And it really became impossible to deny, uh, even even though apparently the Afrikaners called it the Lying and Crying Commission, it, it meant that we didn't get a, in, in South Africa, there really were, you could not lay the groundwork for a gone with the wind reframing of slavery or apartheid as, you know, a, a benign system, you know, with happy slaves, um, except for the bad ones, of course. Um, so that part, I think, was its big success. And the other big success was that they traded amnesty for confession so that some of the major perpetrators of state-sponsored violence did confess in order to avoid trial. Um, But they didn't have any kind of reparations built in, and I think they're still very much suffering in their society from the fact that, you know, it's still such a very unequal society where all of the, the capital that was created by a subordinated group advantaged the oppressors and there was never any compensation. So 
Um, I, I do think we need to think about that. And then I, I do think that um, the question is, do, can we create enough safety to embark on something like that? And that's what I think is really going on right now with the, the proposed uh, uh, relief money that is uh, hopefully going to be approved by Congress, uh, really just to, uh, people talk about it as a stimulus, but it's not really an economic sti- stimulus. It's, it's disaster relief. Yes. Disaster relief for a very immediate near-term right. situation for, for, mm-hmm. for the economic right, exactly. collapse associated with the COVID pandemic, not going back to the injustices that, right, that remain from the Civil War in the 19th century. Right. You have to do safety first. And that means right. safety from the pandemic. A lot of that disaster relief money is about trying to roll out a competent vaccination program that's centralized and uh, equitable and gets people to herd immunity quickly. Uh, so that's what we mean by safety first. And then the economic repair, um, plugging those holes so people don't, we don't have mass evictions and hunger, which is what we're facing right now. Um, so yes, food. Clothing, yeah, healthcare. the basic needs. I want to come back to my, my question though, and that is that the things that we've experienced here in this in this modern moment of the pandemic mm-hmm. and the economic crisis and the racial injustice mm-hmm. are so real and visceral. We're living them right now, and I'm just wondering. And I, I'm not asking you to 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 put traumas on a hierarchy, but can you apply your collective PTSD approach that you've written about in contexts of genocide and? modern civil wars, immediate responses to, you know, uh, families whose children have been killed in a civil war with child soldiers and the immediate reparations and reconciliation. Can we, can you apply the same approach to collective PTSD to the things that we're experiencing here and now in America? Sure. But you have to start with the stage one, which is safety. Right. And then we have a reckoning. And I would argue that talking about the storming of the Capitol right now doesn't make sense unless you understand its white supremacist roots. Um, Scholars of the Ku Klux Klan say this is just the the group that stormed the Capitol is very, in in terms of its components of evangelical Protestant Christians and white supremacists and militias are very similar to the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, which, by the way, was very widespread and not just right. in the South. Right, and we saw and we saw that uh, on display uh, on the sixth, right? With with yeah, with the Confederate flags, flags nooses, uh, out in the out, right swastikas, Holocaust denial on sweatshirts, all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and so right, so the reconciliation, uh, the bearing witness to that experience, has to take into account the historical underpinnings that carry forth. Right. That, that, the, those, those militias were not invented on January 6th, you know. So, um, so that would be my argument about stage two, is the, the getting the truth out there, 
making it known and processing it and grieving and then wanting to do something to fix it. And I think it'd be a lot easier to start talking about how to fix it once you have a very widespread process. Um, I mean, you know, there was a commission after the many of the ghettos had uprisings in the 1960s, late 1960s, after Martin Luther King was assassinated. There was a commission appointed, and it talked about two Americas separate and unequal. And um, that commission report was excellent. And many of its recommendations would still be very pertinent today. You, you, you raise an interesting point because it, I've been wondering in, in, in reading your work and listening to you about how politicians and elected officials respond to collective trauma. And there's certainly a component of bearing witness, but I wonder about the, the balance of a politician, it seems, needs to bear witness, but then typically they'll try to pivot and oh, look forward. Oh, let's move on. Let's move on. Right, yeah. right, yeah. right, yeah. right. So Let's not dwell. So, right, and you had uh, Joe Biden, President Biden, expressing tremendous mm-hmm. empathy, uh, bearing witness to the death and the, and the illness uh, and the trauma that people have experienced in the pandemic, dedicating the night before the inauguration to the, the purpose Mm-hmm. of bearing witness, and then launching into... Which his predecessor did not. Right. So we had one who was in, who was de- in denial, and then the contrast, the marked contrast of Joe Biden bearing witness uh, for and the world. And wanting to move on. Yeah. Well, he's got... I, I mean, I totally understand that he um, he has a lot of work to do and not much time to get it done. Uh, so, of course, he wants to push forward. On the other hand, we have a reckoning with someone who basically incited um, a fascist coup attempt. This is, I mean, to me, this is like the beer hole putsch in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't succeed, but, you know, it it could be a a portent of things to come. Uh, And not just here, but in Europe and other democracies. Um, but I think what politicians can do depends very much on what people know, whether the truth is out there. And that's why I do think that, I mean, the big mistake of the Kerner Commission, what was it, 50 years ago, more, was it was a report, a big written report. How many people read it? It, it needed to be publicized and the testimony of survivors needed to be the main event so that everybody understood what it is we're dealing with. And, and that it's not uh, just a problem over here. It's all of our right. problems. And you've written, you, you've written that, that recovery requires remembrance and mourning. And so yes. that, you you can't move on in your stages in your framework until we first get to safety and name it and grieve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. what you say, Judith, reminds us of uh, Pauline Boss and what she said to us, which was, "We are a nation uh, founded upon unresolved trauma." 
Exactly. Which goes back to what you're saying about the Civil War. It goes back to what you're saying about uh, referencing South Africa. And what's what I find interesting about what you said about South Africa's truth and reparation process is that it puts survivors at the center and does not uh, privilege the powerful. Exactly. It privileges the harm. Yes. Exactly. And in moving forward, you know, it seems like as as we see the the demands upon politicians, we don't Biden doesn't have a lot of time. Right. He must do almost two stages at once: do the safety and the <laughs> and the recognition uh, and the repair. Almost, you know, mm-hmm. um, in this tr- in this accelerated fashion, as we know in trauma treatment, time is our ally. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of our it's one of our tools, and so how for not only the macro but the micro do we sort of as citizens, um, you know, make this effort for ourselves and and support the effort of our of our now leaders who are attempting to to move us through this trauma? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I guess I would just say don't try to do anything alone. No, that's what I tell therapists and certainly people who are involved in, in, in political work, um, find your squad, you know, find your support system, um, find the people that you trust and try to work together with them. Um, and if you're trying to reach out of your comfort zone a little bit and do something you have never done before, like, you know, run for political office or that sort of thing. Know who, you know, know who your, your, your buddies are. Yes, don't do it alone. Judith Herman, thank you so much for joining us on Mind of State. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Mind of State. If you like this episode, you'll find plenty more on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mind of State Pod. Our website is mindofstate.com. Mind of State is produced by Alita Cooper and Jenny Woodward. Special thanks to our co-founder, Thomas Singer. I'm Betty Tang. And I'm Jonathan Kopp. Join us next time on Mind of State.